Good evening, everyone. My name is uh, George Gaskell, and uh, I'd like to welcome you to this evening's debate, which it's my pleasure and privilege to chair, Beyond the Genome, the Challenge of Synthetic Biology. On the panel today, we have Dr. J. Craig Venter, blue shirt, <laughs> well, the real from the eponymous institute in the United States. I'm not going to say too much about Craig because an extended, a 350-page version of his CV will be available outside at a knockdown price, and you get his signature free as well. But I'll come back to that in a moment. Then at the far end, we have Professor Chris Mason, head of Cell stem cell and regenerative medicine bioprocessing at University College London. Next door to Chris is uh, Professor Peter Lipton, head of the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at Cambridge. And to my left is uh, Professor Sarah Franklin, Associate Director of BIOS and a Professor of Sociology here in the LSE. Now, this evening, we'll structure it like this. We have four more presentations for about... 50 minutes, um, then we'll have plenty of time to take questions and to engage in a debate and discussion. Uh, Craig Venter will give us a brief introduction to synthetic biology, and our other experts will raise some issues of scientific, ethical, and the societal dimensions uh, that they see as pertinent and relevant uh, around synthetic biology. Now this debate has been organized by the BIOS Center here at the LSE of which uh, Sarah is the acting director. But it's also been arranged in association with the Royal Society of Arts and with Penguin Books. And it's Penguin Books who are, have just published Craig's autobiography called A Life Decoded. And it's a very good read, I have to say. I had a pre-publication copy, and uh, it's fascinating. It's a life of risk-taking, and sometimes almost reckless risk-taking, in both uh, sailing and in science. It's a fascinating account of the sequencing of the human genome, and of the politics and the personality battles behind the science itself. And it's an unusual autobiography because it tells a narrative story and periodically it is spiced in, so to speak, uh, with comments on the role of genes in certain behavioral traits and characteristics. And this is a reflection on Craig's own uh, interpretation of his genome. So uh, it's a very interesting piece. And he also says some very nice things about my late friend Morris Wilkins, so I enjoyed it from that point of view. Anyway, I very much commend the book. It is available outside, and I think as Craig Venter is our special guest, he deserves a round of applause for going through this week in London and turning up here, having been interviewed by virtually every journalist uh, and <laughs> on various shows and so forth. So uh, I'd like to welcome you to the LSE, Craig. Thank you.
thank you very much for the, uh, the kind introduction, and uh, I appreciate very much the invitation to be here to help uh, shed some light on this exciting new field that probably has a, a far more provocative title uh, than uh, it should have. Uh, I think if scientists, including myself, thought about the public implications more, we've thought of a much more benign title. Uh, but scientists also want to be accurate uh, with what they're doing. Now, synthetic biology is a very broad field, and you can take a dozen scientists in uh, working in different aspects of it, and they would all define it uh, differently. We're actually working in a subset of synthetic biology that I call synthetic genomics. And I thought I'd give you a little bit of uh, origin of how we came about uh, doing this work. So it actually started back in 1995. Uh, some of you might recall uh, we sequenced the first uh, genome from a living organism uh, in history in 1995. Uh, that was Haemophilus influenzae. It had about 1,800 genes. And it was very exciting for the first time in history to try and look and describe the biology of a complete living entity uh, by looking at its genetic code and trying to see what we could say. It was actually very frustrated at the time because about a third of the genes are of unknown function, uh, and we had great difficulty in describing the life of the cell based on its gene content. Uh, shortly after that, still in 1995, we sequenced the second genome. Uh, Clyde Hutchison at the University of North Carolina had been characterizing mycoplasma genitalium and thought it might have the smallest genome of any self-replicating organism. Thus far, uh, he's correct. It only took a short period of time to sequence that genome, and that was also published in Science in 1995. This genome only has about 560 genes. Uh, comparing these two uh, resulted in the first comparative genomic studies uh, in history, because we now had two genomes, two different species to compare. And as I've done throughout my career, I've asked some very simple and basic questions. If one cell needed 500 genes or so to live, another one 1,800, uh, some in the thousands, and now we know from our own genome, we didn't know at the time, we have 23,000 genes. Uh, was there a smaller set? Could we define a minimal operating system for life? It was actually an extremely naive question uh, because, in fact, we know now we cannot define a minimal operating system for life. Uh, or we can't define the minimal operating system, we can define a minimal operating system. That conclusion came to us with the third genome that was done. It was from the first archaea, the first autotroph. An autotroph is something that makes everything it needs uh, for its own uh, metabolism. There's no organic compounds that it relies on. CO2 is its source of carbon. Hydrogen is its source of energy. It generates its cellular energy by converting CO2 into methane uh, into cellular uh, proteins. So to ask these questions, we thought, well, we would find ways to knock out genes in mycoplasma to see if we could eliminate some of them. And we devised a technique called whole genome uh, transposon mutagenesis. It just rolls off the trunk or tongue. <laughs> uh, what it is, transposons are small pieces of DNA that randomly insert in the genetic code. Uh, if you can all look at your own uh, genomes, as I hope within the decade you'll be able to, you'll find about a third of your genetic code is transposons. 
and many human diseases are caused by these elements moving around in our genome. Uh, we put these in mycoplasma and we selected for living cells. Uh, if a gene got knocked out by one of these transposons inserting in it and the cell lived, we would score that as a non-essential gene. We had the complete genome. We could sequence off the transposon, so we knew down to a single letter of the genetic code where they inserted. If the cell died, uh, we knew, in fact, that there was probably an essential gene. The problem is uh, multiple problems. One, you can only do one gene at a time. Uh, there's not enough markers in molecular biology to select sequentially 100 different genes. Uh, and we were able to, one at a time, knock out over 100 genes. But we also found this definition of essential and non-essential uh, to not be uh, very useful just consulting molecular biology. In fact, environmentalists love the fact that as a molecular biologist, we proved the environment was absolutely essential for defining life of a cell, even the most minimal cell. I can give you a very simple example. The cell lives off of two different sugars, glucose and fructose. And there's a gene that encodes a cell surface a transporter for each of those sugars. Now, if in the environment of the cell we have both sugars and you knock out the glucose transporter gene, the cell happily lives. And so you would score that as a non-essential gene. However, if you only have glucose in the media and you knock out that transporter, the cell dies. All of a sudden, you now have that same gene being an essential gene. We also have, even in the simplest cells, a number of compensatory mechanisms. Perhaps if you knock out one gene, as in the case of glucose transport, the fructose transporter takes over. Uh, so we decided there was no way to really fundamentally answer these questions of biology the way we were approaching them, trying to knock out genes. And we came to the conclusion that probably the only technique that would work would be to synthesize the chromosome in the lab. That would allow us to make a wide variety of variations some cases trying to leave out 100 genes, some cases having them all there, shuffling gene order, asking questions. We don't know simple things about genomics, even though our teams and others have now decoded thousands of genomes. Simple things like, is gene order important? Does it matter what comes first? Does it matter where it is on the chromosome? Uh, and we have no fundamental ways to answer these questions with the existing tools in molecular biology. So we thought about uh, making a synthetic chromosome to start to answer these questions. Uh, before we did uh, any experiments, uh, we consulted a bioethics group at the University of Pennsylvania and commissioned them from our not-for-profit institute to do uh, what amounted to be a year-and-a-half-long uh, bioethical review. They consulted uh, every major uh, religion. They consulted lay groups, legal groups, and they published a paper in Science in 1999 uh, sort of summarizing their findings. There wasn't a single religious group that was opposed to what we were doing. Uh, the committee was not opposed to what we were doing. In fact, recommended that we proceed. They thought it was reasonable science for reasonable reasons. Uh, the only caveat was concern about uh, abuse of, for biological warfare potential, which I think is a legitimate concern with any new technologies we have to be concerned about abuse. We actually found it was very difficult to start uh, to make synthetic chromosomes. 
the process of synthesizing DNA in the lab, even though it's been around for 30 years, is a degenerate process. The longer the pieces of DNA you make, uh, the more errors there are. So when we first tried to make a small bacteriophage genome on the order of 5,000 letters, uh, we used PhiX174, which is what Fred Sanger used and sequenced. It was truly the first genome in history. It was a virus, uh, not a living cell. Uh, <laughs> but every letter of the genetic code of that virus is essential. If you have mutations in it, uh, the virus uh, won't uh, work. So we thought it was a great test. We made a series of oligonucleotides, so these are just stretches of the letters of genetic code. The machines can spit out things on the order of 50 uh, to 80 letters long. And we make these so they overlap with each other. Uh, we put them together, they anneal. You can get things uh, the right size, but nothing uh, was infective. Even screening for infection of E. coli cells provides a million-fold selectivity. Nothing worked. So the errors of synthesis were so gross, so grave, that we could not get a virus to work. So we set about, uh, particularly with uh, my friends and colleagues, Ham Smith, a Nobel laureate who discovered restriction endonucleases that led to his Nobel Prize in 1978, and Clyde Hutchison, uh, one of the discoverers of site-directed mutagenesis. They set out to try new techniques in the lab. And uh, a few years ago, we published these in the uh, proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences describing a new method where we could go from a sequence in the computer, the digital world of biology, and that's what sequencing is, allows us to digitize biological information. So we can go from that digital world back into an analog world, and we could make it very accurately, and that took us two weeks to make the Phi X174 chromosome. Uh, we sequenced it and knew it was 100% accurate, when we put that piece of inert DNA into the bacteria E. coli, the bacteria used that as a template and started making the phage particles. Uh, they were sorry they did it because the phage then kills the E. coli, uh, and that's how you detect it. You see clear plaques on these bacterial plates. So I describe this as the software actually building its own hardware. Well, this really changes very little in reality in molecular biology. Conceptually, it changes a lot, where we can go from the digital world to a chemical analog world uh, and use that to boot up new uh, systems. That virus or that phage is only 5,000 letters long. The genome of uh, mycoplasma genitalium is 560,000 letters long. The largest piece of DNA that's been reported to date in the scientific literature is only 30,000 letters long. These are not routine procedures. We had to develop all kinds of new techniques to start to make larger pieces. And we've been building these the way I think evolution happens on a cassette basis. So we built cassettes of five to 10 genes so that we can in fact change the gene order, change the gene content to try and answer some of these questions. So we spent the last four years working on building uh, this chromosome. Uh, the work is still underway. We're still trying to improve it. Uh, but that was only one side of the equation. And I'm certain we can build very large DNA molecules very accurately now because we sequence at every step of the way. The big question is, what do you do with this inert chromosome? Is it just a chemical? So we had another team working simultaneously on a new way to boot up chromosomes. 
Uh, and the, you can view these as chemical software. And we published that uh, result uh, very recently in the journal Science, where we could take a purified chromosome from one mycoplasma species. And the purification part was essential for this. So we put in digestive enzymes that destroyed every protein that was there, because if it's going to be a model for synthetic genomics, where all you have is the chemical DNA, uh, we need to know that just the chemical DNA molecule itself uh, will boot up a cell. Uh, so these were very stringent experiments. They took uh, basically a few years to do so that we were 100% convinced and we could 100% convince the scientific community. Uh, we thought we would have to put this chromosome into a bacterial cell that had lost its chromosome. Now, you've all heard of Dolly the sheep uh, and nuclear transplantation. With eukaryotic cells, it's pretty easy to do this. You can take a dissecting uh, scope, you cut out the nucleus, uh, and then you can put another nucleus in. It, it's, it doesn't take a greatly skilled uh, genius uh, to do that work. Uh, in contrast with bacteria, the, uh, there is no nucleus. Uh, the chromosome is just part of the cytoplasma of the cell. We tried to irradiate to kill it. That didn't work. We tried to uh, chemically uh, destroy uh, the chromosome, but it's the chemicals and the radiation killed key proteins in the cell as well. So we decided just to leave the cell as it was and add the new chromosome. But in molecular biology, we can add uh, unique markers that allow us to select for that piece of DNA growing in the cell. So we put in the uh, chromosome from one species into this other species, then selected for cells with that chromosome in it. Now we didn't know if we would get cells with just that chromosome or that chromosome and the other one, but it turns out we only got ones with the transplanted chromosome. More excitedly, when we sequenced the, the proteins in the cell, all the indications of the earlier species were completely gone and that now this cell had only the characteristics of the new species determined by its new chromosome. So it was a chromosome transplantation. I guess it's the ultimate form of identity theft. Uh, and you can see, in fact, why cells might have mechanisms to protect themselves from this. I, I always appreciated uh, restriction enzymes as laboratory tools, but it was never totally clear to me why they evolved. Uh, now it's clear, they're the immune system for these bacterial cells. If you're a bacteria and you're dividing and going along happily and another chromosome can come in and your species stop, stops existing, you'd want a way to defend yourself against that. And that's what these enzymes do, they chew up a new DNA coming in. Turns out the cell that we we're transplanting the genome into had no restriction enzymes. It was a very unusual cell. The chromosome that we we're transplanting in, in fact, had one. We think that DNA got red, right away produced this uh, enzyme that then recognized the host chromosome as foreign and destroyed it. And then the cells divided based on the new chromosome. Uh, all the proteins turned over and we had uh, a new species. I think we discovered a mechanism that happens all the time in evolution. Evolutionary biologists have been struggling for a long time with this notion that everything was a single base pair point mutation and then there's some kind of magical selection. It's clear from sequencing genomes from a large number of species, we can transfer an entire cassette of information and add remarkable new characteristics to a species. When we sequenced the cholera genome, uh, it turned out 
not what people expected. It actually had two independent chromosomes, one that looked very much like E. coli and one that looked like it clearly came from a different species. We see this all the time. So all the characteristics we know of the cholera bacteria are the result of these two chromosomes. So we can add very complex functions in evolution by moving this software, this chemical software, around. We're in the process now of trying to do these experiments uh, with a synthetic chromosome. Uh, we don't have, contrary to various rumors in the press, we don't have a cell that is driven uh, by a synthetic chromosome yet. Uh, there is absolutely zero doubt in my mind that we will soon, because of the experience with the transplant uh, genome that proves that it's absolutely possible, uh, but we have not yet achieved it. Uh, to me, it's a technicality. I'm sure to the world press it will sound much more impressive. It's a synthetic <laughs> chemical. Uh, but uh, for science, uh, that next step will be a much smaller one than what we've already done. Is that maybe enough to get us started? Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. <clears throat> Fantastic start. Brilliant. Okay, I'm going to uh, show a few pictures because a uh, picture tells a thousand words or whatever the saying goes. So I'm going to talk about the, uh, the translation, how the work of uh, great scientists like Craig will be moved into the public arena so that everyone can benefit from them. It's not just a scientist toy. No, it's a PC. Right, so what's translation? Translation is basically taking science, in the particular example here, taking something in the lab done on the microliter scale, that's a thousandth of a mil, and converted to a 20,000 litre fermenter, which is the middle pitcher, to make a drug such as erythropoietin or growth hormone. And this is a very successful industry. This is biotechnology as we know it today. Why translate synthetic biology? Well, the fact is there is a lot of... Um, unmet need in a, in a number of key areas of global significance, healthcare, energy, environmental cleanup. And at the moment, we don't really have scientific answers to these. And therefore, if we're going to use synthetic biology, we need to scale the technology in order to deliver it safely and in a cost-effective manner. So there really are two approaches. Craig talked about the bottom-up approach design an organism, or design, a, design an organism, and build it. The alternative approach is to have an existing organism and modify it, but modify it not just slightly, but in a very major way for a useful purpose. And I'm going to briefly talk on those two areas. Is synthetic biology a, a whole new area, or is it just a continuum of where we've been going for a long time? It's a good question. Fermentation and process engineering, making a beer has been going on for thousands of years. Recombinant DNA, this is making recombinant proteins like growth hormone, has been going on um, since, ever since Watson and Crick's days of discovering it some 50 plus years ago. And now we have synthetic biology. This is just a continuum of complexity, but nevertheless a continuum. What we learnt brewing beer, we can use to modify plants to make human insulin and I'm sure we'll use to engineer cells that can add, say, two numbers together. The process isn't too complex. We, one needs to design some sort of biological system. The beauty of this is, of the synthetic biology, is that we should be able to predict whether it will work or not before we actually manufacture. When we're happy that it's going to work, we'll des design the DNA, as Craig has just mentioned. 
grow the organism, and then deploy the system to accomplish the function we wish to have it do for us. It's not a million miles away from electronics. Draw a circuit, in this case this one is simply to operate a motor. Select the components, which is what Craig talked about. If they need a fair few, assemble them on a printed circuit board, and away you go. That's what we would like from synthetic biology, very different from the experiments we've done to date. But can biology behave the same as electronics? Biology has a lot of inherent variability. It's not that predictable. It's not that robust. There's a lot of physical variation in the actual biological processes themselves. It's not as easy to scale as producing microchips. And it really is moving life science and biology well and truly in the realm of engineering. It will need a multidisciplinary approach if we are to translate the great discoveries into benefit to mankind. It will certainly need biologists. It will need physicists, chemists, mathematicians, computer programmers, engineers. I've probably missed many off that list, but I think they're the key headings. All these people need to work together to actually do the science and also to bring the translation forward. But to bring the translation forward, one needs key enabling technologies or components. Predictable off-the-shelf parts. That's the luck the computer guys have. They can go to what is called the RS catalogue, select a chip, bolt them together. It's why Google can produce a new website very quickly. All the science is worked out. All they had to come up with was the great idea. One needs a robust biological chassis. Craig just mentioned it. In this case, the example I've got is yeast and E. coli. So something which we can um, give a new identity to. And then we need a standard way of assembling the components together some way they will actually fit so they're interchangeable parts. An open source availability and development would also help the field along greatly. There are already people out there producing parts. This is off the MIT website. This is very much like the RS catalogue I mentioned earlier where you can find electronic components, except these are biological components. And by going to this website, we can browse their catalogue, we can look at various different biological systems, devices, and individual parts that go right down to the very minutiae of making a new life form. Clicking on it brings up another page and then a list of the parts that one might want to use. In this particular one, it's inverters and logic devices. Sounds like electronics, I think. It tells you what the name of the component is, what the input needs to be, and what the output needs to be. This is reducing the components of life to the individual core parts so that you can then start to assemble whole organisms from the various parts. And it's very easy. We all understand cut and paste. Everybody in this room can use a word processor. Here are two different organisms, each with a little part in the middle. On the, there's a blue one, B0034, and it's a green one on, on the other side, 0C0010. It doesn't matter what they are. These are two separate, what they call biobricks. They may have two they will have totally different functions. One might be the equivalent of, say, a logic gate in electronics. You want to put the two together, snip the, bl the blue one out, and add it to the green one by making a break in the DNA strand. This is a ring of DNA. It's what Craig just spoke about. And combine the two together. In skilled hands, half an hour's work. It does take a while to learn the technique, but it's not that difficult. It's simple cut and paste. So what drives the translation? Is it the great science? Clearly you need great science. 
but you need a combination. You need the technology to be pushed forward by the scientists, by companies, but you also need people who actually want the technology, the market pull. It's a growing area. This slide shows the rise in the number of synthetic biology publications per year. It's just the key publications. If you notice up, the, up the, this side here, it goes 0 to 75. It's about 65 publications specifically to this area this year. It's still a very small area, but very significant in that we're seeing big blue chip companies already joining in the game. This is a, a, a consortium called the Synthetic Biology Engineering Research Centre, which has DuPont, General Electric, HP, Merck, Microsoft, Sun. They all want part of the action, whether they're big pharma, electronics, or IT. They can see the potential in synthetic biology, albeit at this moment in time a very, very small area compared to other areas of life science. The cost of the technology is also dropping. Craig talked about making... Um, making genes, adding the base pairs together. In 1990, it was about $12 per base pair. Today, it's under a dollar. This is the belt and braces, or rather, the, the, the picks and shovels, I should say, of how this technology works. The fact the cost is coming down will enable more companies to enter the space and universities and academics to do more research. It's a growing market. At the moment, the reagents market, that's the materials we use to make these new, these new organisms, is around about 600 million, with synthetic genes being about half of that. It's predicted at about 10 years' time it'll be about 3 billion. The interesting thing to notice here, it's all about the tools. It's the Levi Strauss who made the genes for the gold rush, not the products, unfortunately, at this moment in time. We're still very much at a tools state. The commercial landscape today, we have, we have tools companies, which I've just talked about, but there aren't many. Product companies, this is a high-risk, high-reward area. And there are companies out there, such as Craig's and others, for example, making new drugs for malaria, malaria um, that will be affordable in the developing world. But there are very few of them. And the underpinning technology, however, is there. It's very strong. It's the whole of the biotech industry. Many companies in the space underpinning the technology. Patience is a virtue. Technologies don't get to market that quickly. We've all heard of monoclonal antibodies, actually discovered in 1975 and really not commercialised until the mid-1990s, some 20 years later, when Herceptin arrived on the scene. Today, it's about a $20 billion industry, about 20 FDA-approved products and another 200 in clinical trials. It took a long time from 1975 to the present day to get that sort of, of leverage on the, on the scientific discovery. And this is true, in fact, for all biotech platform technologies ever, period. So we need to be patient on this one. Synthetic biology is still a very, very new area. For my last few slides, I'm going to talk about public buy-in. The stakeholders we discussed earlier, the biologists, chemists, computer programmers, engineers. But say for medicine example, we need the patients to have buy-in. We need the healthcare providers and also the taxpayers who will fund a lot of the underpinning research. We also need companies, regulators, founders, all to join in to really push it forward and move the technology into, into the marketplace. Public buy-in is essential. We've seen this before. We saw it with Prop 71 and human embryonic stem cells in California. With that buy-in, buy it turned the regenerative medicine sector around and pushed stem cells forward all over the world. 
You cannot successfully commercialise if public opinion is negative, as we've all seen with GM crops in the past. I'm going to end with just a couple of slides. The Gartner hype curve. Gartner developed this curve up the margin of the side is visibility, public visibility. Along the bottom is time. When new technologies come out, there is a huge amount of hype, a lot of excitement. No one knows really what they can do, but everybody wants in. And we see this fantastic peak to a a summit, and then disillusionment sets in. It doesn't quite do as much as we thought it might. There's not as much money to be made. The science isn't quite as advanced as we thought it was and we drop down into the trough of disillusionment. But out of that comes a slope of enlightenment and a plateau of productivity. We can all identify technology products that fit this Gartner curve. The internet, for example, first time round, shot up the curve, lots of hype, and eventually went bankrupt in about 2000, 2001. And now we're going back up the curve with real products like Google and iTunes and things like that. The same is true for biotech. Biotech is clearly on the plateau of productivity after many years of being developed and products coming forward. Synthetic biology, I would argue, and Craig may think differently, and I'm prepared to discuss later, is that it's still up going up the hill of the sort of technology trigger, still very much on the hype curve, not delivering yet, but a lot of excitement. And the reason there is that the science at this moment in time is all very wonderful. It's fantastic. It's very exciting. But the translation isn't keeping up with the science. Can we deliver? And that's the key thing. It's all very well doing great science, but people want outcomes. That's where their money goes. And so we need to balance this such that the translation is equally big. And so we have a sort of seesaw that's level. Great science coming in, not being wasted, and going out as great translation into real products. My last slide, it's possible to deliver synthetic biology products quicker by collaborating earlier. Traditionally, biotech has come up with a lot of great research, possibly done in academia, possibly done in a company. Eight to ten years goes by, they describe a molecule, and then they they translate it. They spend another eight to ten years. It's not a satisfactory thing. It takes about 17 years on average to get a product, all the way through FDA approval, and into the clinic, for example, for a medical product. For synthetic biology, I hope we can do better. Because it's multidisciplinary, everyone needs to work together. Research and translation should go on at the same time, and we will get there earlier. So I hope that gives a brief overview of the translation of synthetic biology. Thank you. Okay, so um, first let me say how very, very pleased I am to see so many of you here this evening. Um, And my thanks to everyone who worked extremely hard to pull this event together. In particular, I'd like to thank Sabrina Fernandez, uh, our center manager, and also our partner in this event, the Royal Society of Arts. Annabelle Huxley and Penguin Books have also been crucial in pulling this together. And, of course, we owe particular thanks to Craig Venter for his request to come speak at the LSE. As many of you know, the bioscience agenda is of increasing importance to the school. And I'm very glad that this is becoming much more widely recognized. The formation of the BIOS Center here 
was intended specifically to encourage greater engagement with the scientific community, and the attendance at this event confirms exactly why this priority is both timely and necessary. But what kind of priority is this? What does it mean to talk about the social implications of synthetic biology, which is my, my task for this evening? Even to phrase the question in this way tells us something important. It reminds us of the way we tend to think of science and social implications as two separate things. But what science studies has told us for more than three decades is that this can never be true. We can never have a science that's outside the social. And science is clearly at the heart of what we call society, especially modern society. Some might even say that, de that developed countries, such as the UK, are so thoroughly organized by a post-enlightenment rationality driven by a secular scientific agenda of pro progress. The experimental science is one of Britain's core belief systems. Actually, as an anthropologist, I have said exactly that. <laughs> and indeed, I'm not the only one to have written more than one book about it. So why is it that when we come to ask about the social implications of science, such as synthetic biology, that there seems to be, in many respects, still a very impoverished vocabulary in mainstream debate, as the press coverage of Craig Venter's visit confirms, with some notable exceptions, there is still a rather narrow range of cliches and stereotypes that tend to be invoked somewhat mindlessly for this important task. The familiar Frankenstein figure, the specter of science being out of control, its unknowable risks, its dangerous uncertainties. I'm not suggesting these are wholly out of place, nor that we don't have good reasons to worry about areas such as genetic engineering. As we know, new technology not only carries risks, it can create new ones. As Ulrich Beck has argued, a defining paradox of today's society is that future scientific progress will be necessary in part to compensate for the scientific progress of the past which is why we need biofuels to save the world from the oversized carbon footprint of petroleum-fueled economic growth. But my question is, how else might we address the question of technology and social change, which Raymond Williams famously described as one of the most elusive questions in all of social science? One of the main goals of the BIOS project here at the LSA is to work on this question through initiatives such as this panel. Two things that we can say about the contemporary Anglo-European debate about science and its social agenda are first, that this debate is dominated by a discourse of worry and caution in relation to the hype of progress in scientific advance. And second, that an increasing emphasis on public participation in science is one of the unifying themes within 21st century science policy and not only in Europe. Post-GM, the precautionary principle and public participation reign supreme. And both of these impulses are perfectly sensible and have their place. But the problem is that they tend to encourage a very limited genre of debate, which ironically tends to reproduce itself somewhat robotically, a bit like cloning. 
So what do I mean by this? If we want to diagnose the current quality of public debate about science, two of its most consistent features at the level of form and often regardless of content are scale and time. The scale of scientific change, often described as the sheer scale of scientific change, and I've used this expression myself often enough, so I'm no exception, is frequently invoked as vast, incomprehensible, and beyond our ability even to imagine. Synthetic biology is exactly like this, described by one commentator as GM times a million. It's too much even to get a handle on. Genetics was like this in the 1990s. The Book of Life, the Code of Codes, Man's Second Genesis. The pace of scientific change is similarly configured as beyond our reach, racing ahead, leaving society behind. And of course there is a sense in which both of these things are true. Changes in scientific understanding do alter our sense of scale, and technology does race ahead. But my concern is that these somewhat rote reactions are simply not adequate any longer to begin to have a more constructive conversation about what kind of science we need, how it will be governed, or who will have a place at that table. In a word, they're monotonous. They are the call to which a particular kind of response is always heard, and that response is containment. As in, if synthetic biology is so vast, so fundamental, and so fast, the answer must be to attempt to contain it. My concern is that the inflationary language of scale and time through which scientific futures are depicted, what I'm calling the vast and fast paradigm, can be misleading. Because paradoxically, technology also isn't racing ahead. And in many ways, it's not changing the scale of anything. The history of much technology is the history of technological failure. Have you tried to use home broadband in London recently? Scale is similarly duplicitous. Scale tends to be inflated with foresight and diminished with hindsight, as with the Human Genome Project. As Craig himself explained quite cogently on one of his many appearances this week, oh, and um, could I just ask you, Craig, is it secretly actually cloning that you've discovered? Uh, since you've been in so many places at once. Um, as Craig has explained, the human genome was initially imagined to reveal a unique and vastly different human genome, but instead revealed not only fewer genes separating humans from other humans, but not very many genes separating humans from cabbage. But, this, but the genome, this human genome, as we now know, and as Craig explains in his book, was a bit of a stitched together genome, a strategically negotiated genome, a draft sequence that was more a triumph of diplomacy than a long-awaited masterpiece of scientific discovery, which came later. And now, in 2007, we're already in the post-genomic phase of epigenesis with new models to explain how DNA is told what to do. And the, the point of this is to remind us what we already know about scientific progress that it relies on a very standardized form of storytelling with a rather limited set of starting points, metaphors, plot lines, and denouements. And science is not innocent in this process. Scientists need stories to support their work. 
stories they tell to funding bodies, governments, venture capitalists, and the general public. Without the right story, their research cannot survive. And as Chris has shown, these stories are often deliberately inflated. They're designed to fuel expectations. But the area of stem cells is a very good place to look for a debate about the role of hype in science. Within the scientific community, there's an understandable caution about overhyping the field of human embryonic stem cell derivation in particular, so that inflated expectations do not create a bubble that will burst and set the field back by decades, as arguably happened to tissue engineering in the 1990s. On the other hand, there's a genuine need for treatments to common, severe, and currently incurable conditions from Alzheimer's and Parkinson's to diabetes and cystic fibrosis. So this brings us to hope, which is really what's at the heart of what we're talking about when it comes to the justification for scientific progress. The fact is that when we put together hope for a medical cure or a technological solution with the possibility of science to provide one, we have a very powerful equation. We have a very powerful social technology. And this is especially true when we talk about terminal childhood diseases, global warming, HIV and AIDS, cancer and heart disease, or malaria. The key paradox at the center of the public debate about science is that social hope, the very same social hope that fuels much technological innovation exists in a constant tension with the enforcement of strict limits to scientific innovation. At the same time, a strong sense of moral obligation to reduce human suffering drives forward radical agendas for change, which is one way, after all, to describe a vaccination program. An equally strong sense of moral obligation calls for strict boundaries restricting scientific experimentation. And this is not an unfamiliar form of modern ambivalence. It's not news that this paradox lies very much at the heart of modernity or post-modernity or post-humanism for that matter. We've been here often enough to recognize that the unfamiliarity of scientific futures is exactly how we got to where we are today. Everything modern about us relies on massive scientific and technological transformation and that's quite frankly common sense. And this is why the adjective revolutionary today more commonly describes household appliances than social movements. So where does this leave us? How can we have scientific progress that responds to enough hope without too much hype? What is the form of scientific governance that allows revolutionary change to occur within agreed upon limits? In what form will public engagement with science further these ends? I think Craig Venter is here at the LSE because he knows that we know that he knows, that we all know, that research scientists have to play an increasingly active role in this conversation. And if I may add, I'd like to congratulate Craig Venter for being here to do so. So in my experience, it's when we take a different kind of time and a different kind of scale to address these difficult questions that we're more likely to have something other than a very predictable and often a very polarized discussion about new, challenging, and unfamiliar areas of scientific innovation. 
In contrast to the scale of the vast, the fast, and the incomprehensible, it's much more useful to begin with the specific and the localized. And in contrast to the time of speed, blur, and racing ahead, it's much more useful to take the ordinary and quotidian time of conversation or dialogue, such as this one, to allow us room to think. I'm very pleased we're here tonight to have a conversation of this kind about an area of science we can at least learn a little bit about before addressing it as always, already, remote, separate, and suspect. The deceit of the science and society formation is the gap between those terms that very phrase always reproduces. The social study of biomedicine, bioscience, and biotechnology may not be quite as elegant a formulation, but it does what it says on the tin. It offers an empirical way forward based on what we already know instead of a caricature of where we are based on what we don't. Thank you very much. People from different disciplines see the same phenomenon very differently. So there's a physicist, a biologist, and a mathematician sitting in a car outside a house, and they see two people go into the house, and sometime later they see three people come out of the house. The physicist says, experimental error. <laughs> the biologist says, reproduction. And the mathematician says, if one of those people goes back into the house, the house will be empty. <laughs> it's because of that that I think it's so important that we have occasions like this one when people from very different disciplines focus on the same phenomena because we do see it differently. I'm not a biologist. I'm a philosopher. And I'm just going to share a few thoughts with you about how one might begin to think about synthetic biology, in perhaps not right now, but in the future, medium and long term, and some of the worries one might have about it and how one might negotiate those worries. I came across two uh, slogans recently in my uh, feverish study of the subject over the last two weeks, and uh, one of them is a characterization of the discipline, creating new life forms that nature forgot. Uh, that's meant to be an upbeat statement, but I think for some of us, it's a little scary. Here's another one that I heard about. I don't know if this is true, but I heard that this was an advertising slogan that a manufacturer of uh, plasma TV screens was thinking of using uh, to try and sell their new technology, which they felt they could argue had a synthetic biology element to it. And the slogan that they considered, that the advertising firm considered, was live organisms in your television screen to give you a livelier picture. <laughs> and what they found when they tried that out is that people did not want to have a screen like that in their home. So that also captures a certain natural worry one might have. I want to start by making two comparisons and then turn very briefly to the, to the worries. The first comparison is, of course, the obvious comparison. And that is the comparison between this technology and evolution by natural selection. Now, it's a 
in some ways, of course, it's a very dramatic contrast, and it's a contrast we're very familiar with, particularly those of us who are Americans, because we're very familiar with the debate over evolution versus uh, intelligent design. Well, I suspect that none of us on this uh, podium anyway have any time for intelligent design as it is normally disputed. But of course, synthetic biology is exactly that. It is people acting as intelligent designers. And it creates the same kind of contrast with evolution by natural selection. But I don't want to exaggerate the contrast here. Because after all, Darwin himself came to the idea of evolution by natural selection in part because of what he knew about stock breeding practices, which is kind of intelligent design, but an intelligent design that exploits a selection mechanism. And I have to say, talking here at the LSE, that if you think about the process of science, the intelligent design of scientific research, it is indeed very natural to suppose that that also has a strong natural selection element to it. That was one of Popper's main ideas about how science works, conjecture and refutation. You generate lots of ideas. Most of them are junk. But you select out the bad ones, and you hope you'll end up with something better. So the contrast is not as great as it might at first appear. Final point that I think uh, is worth drawing from the Darwinian comparison. Through our history, I think we have had a fear of monsters. I think you see that in the Bible very clearly. I think you see that in many cultures. The sense of something that violates species boundaries. But I think that one of the things that Darwin has done, or ought to have done if more people appreciate what Darwin is really about, is that Darwin has broken down the notion of species as immutable, unchangeable elements and so may make us more comfortable in the longer term with monsters. All right, I want to turn very briefly to some of the obvious worries that you may have about synthetic biology. First, and this is, I think, pretty obviously the most serious worry, but I'm not going to say much about it, is this, the, the physical dangers of this technology in the longer term. We're used to the dangers of all kinds of technologies, the unintended consequences, the intended consequences uh, of evil people. But in some ways, this technology is particularly scary. Unlike nuclear technology, this technology will, I think, be, relatively speaking, very cheap and available to many people. I think the hacker analogy, the computer virus analogy, as far as I can tell, is a rather good analogy to what we have to face up to. But the reaction to this can't be, all right, we'll stop this technology. We just won't do it because we don't have that power. It's going to happen, so it's got to be a question of proper constraint, proper regulation. A quite different reason that one might find this technology particularly threatening is because it involves the creation of life. It involves the creation of organisms that they're themselves uh, able to create further life. It, reproduction. But I'm not sure that that concern survives a lot of scrutiny. We're very happy to breed, not just ourselves, but to breed animals. We're very happy to use the organisms we breed instrumentally, for example, to eat them. 
So I think if there's something specially worrying about synthetic biology, it can't simply be the, the breeding and the instrumental use. It has to be this idea of a special new type of life that we're creating. Some people may worry that the creation of new kinds of life form may reduce our dignity. But I'm not clear that that is a really a coherent worry. I don't think the existence of mules compromises the dignity of horses. So I don't really see that. Some people will say this is a bad thing because it is unnatural. But it's very difficult to know how to read that. I think it's a very intuitive worry, but it's very difficult to make sense of. In a sense, everything we do is unnatural because we've done it. It wouldn't have happened unless we did it. That's a tautology. But most people don't think that everything that humans do is bad for that reason. So in many cases, I think the word unnatural in this context just means it's something we do that I don't like. But that's not an argument. We need some independent reason for saying why it's not to be liked. And there may be such reasons, but they have to be provided. Finally, I think people have an understandable worry that this technology is scary because it is an example of us playing God. And the intelligent design analogy applies directly here. Well, what's wrong with playing God? There is a sense in which we are playing God. We are doing the kind of job that nature does in creating new life forms. We are now doing that job as well. But again, that's just a description. What would make it bad? Well, I think one obvious thought here in the context of that expression, playing God, is that God had an edge here because God was omnipotent and omniscient. And we, unfortunately, are not omniscient. And actually, even though he was omniscient, did he do that great a job? I mean, look at what you end up with when you're omniscient. So what's going to happen when we do it? Well, I think that's a very reasonable concern. And it points to a real problem. But that's a problem we just have to live with because we are only human. And again, the answer is oversight and regulation and discussion. We're not going to be able to stop it. Thank you very much. Splendid. Thank you very much, colleagues. Uh, you've been very patient, members of the audience, and now it's your turn to ask some questions. Could I, could I really suggest that you ask questions and not present a, uh, a short lecturette that and uh, any long lecturettes I will cut off. So, brief and succinct questions. Philippa. And what we'll do is take three or four questions and then I'll invite the panel to... Uh, Make some observations on Thank you, George, and thank you to all of the speakers for really excellent presentations. Um, I wanted to um, pick Craig's brain a little or ask for your thoughts um, on something you mentioned as an aside, which was the, the misuse of the life sciences or, or what you termed the abuse of the life sciences, and then relate that to what um, Chris Mason talked about in terms of buy-in. Um, much of the debate in uh, the misuse of life sciences at the moment is around synthetic biology. Um, and um, on the basis of your background in bringing in both kind of um, a researcher 
scientist perspective and from your experience in industry. Um, I'd be very keen to hear your views on, on how to engage the industry in the discussion that's currently going on around misuse because at the moment the scientific community seems to be uh, very um, or fairly engaged in security concerns. So the Royal Society here in the UK is currently um, uh, developing initiatives on this. The National Academies in the US is. Uh, the, research council in, the, the research councils in the US are, have also recently come out with an initiative um, and so has um, the Sloan Foundation in the US, etc., etc. So the scientific community is, to some extent, very engaged in the misuse debate. But industry is absolutely, um, completely absent, I would say, almost. And I wondered if you could share some of your thoughts on how to engage industry uh, in this debate. Thank you. Next question, please. Gentleman in the second row. You might like to say who you are, just to uh, briefly. You can try. Testing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this question is posed for uh, Dr. Venter, um, and this is in perspective of the the new election in the states. Um, embryonic stem cell technology went on this, the, at least the political limelight in January 2004, and from January to June 2004. Um, human embryonic stem cell technology hit the scene. Do you think that there's a chance for uh, synthetic biology to hit the political scene and come into the political arena? Another question, please. Gentleman in the middle at the back, in the bottom of the balcony. Yeah, this even needs No, no, wait for the... Uh, <coughs> Thank you. Thanks. I just had a question about... Who are you? Sorry. Oh, I'm Ken Shadlin here from the LSE. Um, and my question is about ownership of the knowledge, which is something that didn't really come up except for very briefly in Chris Mason's presentation. One of the slides about a facilitating environment is something about easy access or open source availability. And I'm just wondering sort of who owns the knowledge and how the structure of ownership affects or is likely to affect future sort of subsequent innovations and patterns of knowledge creation and more importantly knowledge use. Thank you very much. Final question in this back the gentleman at the back. Yes, thank you. Hi, I'm Jeff Carr, and I'm one of those evil journalists. <laughs> I, I write for The Economist. Um, and I was really directing towards Sarah Franklin, but also towards Craig, who I think is going to be discussing uh, journalism tomorrow. Am I right? Lecture tomorrow? Anyway, um, do, yes. uh, would you? <laughs> yeah. Um, I agree with you that there's, there's, a, a, there's a tendency for um, uh, science presented in the press to be stereotyped. Um, the question I would ask is is this more the fault of the journalists for stereotyping or the readers for wanting it stereotyped? How would you break out of this cycle? Because um, it's, it's quite hard sometimes. Um, even on a publication like mine, to, um, uh, to deal with that question of, well, the readers expect certain sorts of presentations, so the editors expect you to present things in certain ways, um, which, as we are commercial organizations, is a perfectly reasonable argument. Uh, it's one I resist, obviously. Right, thank you very much. So we've got four questions. We've got getting industry involved in biosecurity, 
We've got, will it become political in the US? Something about intellectual property rights. And we've got uh, problems, Ad advice to the press. <laughs> uh, Craig, would you like to uh, pick any or all of those particular few short comments? But feel free to ignore some. Uh, well, let me start uh, with Joffrey's uh, question. Uh, it's the most intriguing one and, and, and probably ones that the people with me are most nervous that I answer. Um, because I have some observations on that over the last few days. Um, one of the things that I find more with television stations, and not just here but around the world, is they really want to talk down to their audience. I, I haven't been on a show probably other than Stephen Colbert's show uh, where they didn't say their audience had sort of a third or fourth grade education and you had to really overly simplify things. I had a very nice experience yesterday um, with a lecture I gave here that uh, that I have not infrequently because I don't talk down to audiences or I try not to. Um, and I think the science is comprehensible by almost everybody if they want to try, unlike how science has been taught before. And a statement that I get not infrequently is that I'm not a scientist, but I understood about 80% of what you were saying. I think people can understand in context. Um, when it's always sensationalized, I think people have to work much harder to read through all that nonsense to, to get to it. Um, I, I don't find people as stupid as television stations assume they are. Uh, and I think that is a challenge. I think The Economist is a rare exception uh, that I applaud. Um, and maybe that's why it's read more than, than some other things. But it, it is a challenge. I think scientists in part are at fault for all the reasons we heard in terms of uh, the number one question I get is, well, what are the advantages? So you have to start listing all the advantages for doing anything, um, whether especially if you're trying to get a research grant or somebody to fund it. Uh, when you're presented with that this is a evil, scary thing, um, you want to go to the other end to try and show why, if we don't do something as a population, we may not have the luxury of discussion uh, because we'll so pollute our planet uh, that it won't be survivable. Um, so I, I think it is a challenge. I think it's a challenge for scientists. Uh, I think it's a challenge for people to try to translate science uh, to the general public. Uh, I think scientists have much more of a responsibility than most of us take to try and explain what we do to the public. And that's why sessions like this I, I very much appreciate where there can actually be a discussion and a dialogue versus, uh, as with one of my BBC interviews, people screaming at each other. Um, you know, uh, I, I can do that with the NIH or somebody in private without any difficulty. So, um, what? Why don't I quit with that one before I get myself in trouble? Okay, that's fine. Chris, would you like to talk about any views on biosecurity in this? Uh, I'd like to pick up on the political scene one, actually, because I think that's a, a topic very much in my camp. Yeah, because of the um, human embryonic issue and the uh, and, and Bush in 2001. I think first of all, there's a, a, um, an underlying right that the public pays for the research and therefore they should have products that come out at the end of it. Scientists need to deliver more than novel science which we publish in fancy journals. There needs to be real benefit to mankind. And I think the problem was in the US was that the 
president was out of step with the population circle of California, where 70% of the people who voted on Prop 71 obviously voted in favour. And they really weren't voting for the science. They, there was no tick in the box for I want to support stem cells. It was really, I want to support cures, I want to support jobs in California. So it was really the value of the science is what the population was, was voting on. And I think the same is true for synthetic biology. If there is real value to be had in it, such as environmental issues, such as health issues, say we can develop um, cheaper drugs that work fantastically well and are affordable in the developing world, then synthetic biology will move ahead very well. If it's something that just the idle rich can, can um, uh, buy and purchase for you know, enhanced cosmetic looks, whatever else, no, it won't do so well. So I think we as a sector need to keep the population and everybody with us. I don't know if you'd like me to comment on the, the political arena uh, as well. A lot of these were addressed to me. I'm willing to at least try to answer them. Um, I, I think it's sad for many reasons what's happened in U.S. politics over the last uh, two administrations uh, with the Bush administration that uh, I, I'm hoping to use his term that well, I know we will have a regime change. It's a question of <laughs> what the new regime will be. Um, individually, I'm hoping that it will be Hillary Clinton who is actually very, very scientifically literate uh, and addresses these issues. And I'm hoping that synthetic genomics and the implications for it actually come up as, as part of the election process. In fact, she has in fact mentioned it uh, in discussions with me in, in one setting already because of what we're addressing with it, trying to find alternative fuels, alternatives mm -hmm. to taking carbon out of the ground, burning it, and putting it in the atmosphere. Uh, I'm actually quite disturbed. I, uh, if anybody who's seen my uh, lectures over the last few days I'm having to change my slide every few months on how much carbon we're putting into the atmosphere. Uh, it started out at 3.1 billion tons a year. It, it then changed to 3.5 billion. Uh, I just had to change it to 4.1 billion. It looks like it may be accelerating. Uh, the carbon load of the environment um, may be saturating. And we could reach a point of catalytic change with our planet. I'm an experimental scientist. I don't want to see that experiment done. <laughs> and so my view is any technology that offers hope, potential, reality for coming up with alternatives for renewable fuels uh, should be one of the number one priorities of modern society. Uh, and I think it, that discussion is beginning to happen. The stem cell debate will go away uh, if we get a democratic uh, administration. The stem cell debate has nothing to do with science. It has to do with abortion. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you can take any social thing and, and follow the piggyback uh, responses of where it leads to, but fundamentally... The stem cell debate is, a, is an abortion yeah. debate, not, not a scientific It's also we haven't delivered yet. We need to deliver. We need a success. Right. But Every technology needs. Gene therapy is a good example. If you can deliver a success, the rules change. NIH has a uh, – it's spending $20 billion with very little delivery, so I, I don't think a new field <laughs> like stem cells has to, you know, immediately we, we, I think deliver. we need to deliver. Uh, but it's uh, – the, the industry might have to, so – 
want to wait for the... Peter, could yeah. we pick up the uh, intellectual property rights? I mean, uh, it was 1980 that it was decided that uh, <laughs> it was possible to patent life forms. Was that the Chakrabarti case? I mean, do you see any problems? I'm actually not going to answer that question, <laughs> but I would like to make a brief comment about the politics and about the, uh, the, the journalism. Is that all right? I'm sorry about that. I'll leave that to... Maybe Sarah will take that one, but... Very briefly, I wanted to say about the politics that I do think it's very important to take into account cultural variation. The reaction is going to be different in different places. I think we saw that very clearly in the differential reaction in the United States and in this country about uh, GMOs. So you had much more of a worry about it in, in this country, and I think there are a number of reasons for it. You had a history here of foot and mouth and BSE. You have a much more interest in uh, green issues here, I think. You have a hostility to agribusiness here that you don't have to the same extent in the States. And I think in the States you have more confidence in regulatory bodies and in technology generally. And I think if you don't take those factors into account, I mean, I agree with Craig about abortion in the stem cell case. But in this other case, it's many factors. You're going to misjudge your, your audience. Just very briefly on the, the journalism thing, I think that it is, uh, you've got to write what the people want to read, but it would be a lot easier for you if the scientists wanted to spend a lot more time with you and with the people. And I, but I think there are, there are pretty obvious reasons why that has been so difficult. One is very simple. It's that uh, most of the scientists I know anyway are really driven people. They are driven to do the science and they don't want to do anything else. And so it's just very difficult to get them to give up serious time to do this other stuff. The other reason is that I think they find it a little bit threatening. They find it a little bit threatening because while in principle, if it didn't take time, they'd be willing to uh, engage in what uh, in science studies is sometimes called the diffusion model, where you just sort of trickle out some information so the masses can be educated. Uh, we used to call it public understanding of science. That seemed a bit condescending, pus. Um, but now we call it public engagement with science. But I think genuine engagement is a little threatening to some scientists because they want to be left alone, basically, to get on with their work. They're happy to tell you about why it's a terrific thing, but they don't want you to get in the way. And if you engage in a serious way with the public and you respect the public, there's always a risk that that will happen. Okay, let's take the next round of questions. We have one down here. If, if uh, I could suggest, I think the other two are important to address. I, I get them almost universally um, on, on the misuse issue and the ownership. Um, please feel free. Yeah, I thought I'd. I thought I'd. Okay. Let me start with ownership of knowledge. Um, I, I don't even understand that term. I, I guess if you buy an encyclopedia, you own the knowledge. <laughs> Uh, but if you don't read it, you don't really. Um, so uh, ownership is not, of knowledge is, is something we possess. I, I, I'm truly stunned by the importance of the patent issue in this country over any other issue. Uh, it's, it's actually a part of the U.S. Constitution, and it's a exchange that society makes with inventors so that they, in fact, won't keep their knowledge and their invention secret. Uh, the best example I can come up with is Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola did not want to patent their formula because patents require them to disclose it to the public so other people can make it and modify it. Uh, so the opposite of patents is trade secrecy. Uh, 
it's something, it's a concept that just doesn't work here. It could be a whole other discussion maybe why it doesn't work. So we publish all our science in the scientific literature. All our sequences are in the public databases. But if you don't read the scientific literature, you certainly can't own the knowledge. If you don't engage in discussion, you won't have knowledge. So I think these are totally different than legal issues about Chakrabarty decisions, et cetera. But it's a confusion that I get asked every place I stop in this country, almost nowhere else on the planet. So I think it's important that it's addressed here. But, Craig, the American regulation on patents specifies that the thing has to pass the criterion of utility. So will there be patenting of synthetic biology or biobricks or something until people know what they're going to do with them? And that's demonstrably useful. Biobricks are sort of a student project, and it's fun, and there's a lot of discussion around it. There are dozens of small companies right now trying to come up with new alternatives to oil that I can guarantee you everyone is patenting the cells that they make and modify. And I've argued that this is one area, if there's not an economic solution to the fuel problem, there won't be a solution. I can publish the sequence of a cell that can make jet fuel from sugar, but I doubt that you're going to go make jet fuel in your backyard. If there's not commercial companies picking up and working on this, we've wasted the science. It does not translate into any benefit for society. So it's an essential part of things. I would agree on that. I mean, the other challenge is that I think biotechnology has got more complex on its patenting. So 20 years ago you could describe the molecule you were going to make. That would be your patent. Now you need a number of patents to make a product from, say, a stem cell or synthetic biology. And that thicket of patents is making it more challenging for companies to have freedom to operate. Sarah? I didn't realize it was going to be such an American panel. But anyway, here's the American talking to the other American. The thing is, Craig, in Europe they think patents are moral. And there is a whole component of patent law here, which is about whether or not it's moral to patent a life form. I'm going to keep my answers really short because I think it's important for other people to speak. But if I could just say one other thing about the journalism question. It always surprises me here in Britain where there's such a highly developed public culture about science. We have Penguin here who published as one of their most popular series science books. And on television, tons of very sophisticated science documentaries. On the radio, you know, lots of very elaborate science programs. And I don't really think there's any evidence that people want a dumbed-down version, a stereotyped version of science. I think maybe that's what some newspaper editors think their readership wants because a sensationalist version will sell more papers. But I'd be surprised to see any evidence that that's actually the case. Can I address the misuse issue? Because that's the number one that does come up. And I don't want to duck any of these issues. We have to be concerned. We as a species have a pretty crummy history. 
you know, I don't think there's ever been such a violent species on this planet uh, that has done so much murder and mayhem to their fellow members of that same species. Up until very recently, the U.S. government, the British government, and the, the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, were putting millions of dollars into making bacteria and viruses that kill lots of people. All of us were pretty ignorant of that because we didn't have the knowledge. It was not in the public domain. Uh, there was laws in the U.S. that stopped that. The former Soviet Union uh, and the U.K., in theory, have all stopped this uh, research. Uh, we have the threat of terrorism. There was a review with uh, some of the discussion in the U.S. Uh, with the Sloan Foundation report that my institute and MIT participated in uh, that, yes, there is potential for people to make viruses and bacteria, um, but that as you look down one that you mentioned in, in, in the news here is uh, – I thought it was hoof and mouth disease. I thought only politicians got foot and mouth disease. Um, uh, that there's literally thousands of labs around the world that you could go to their freezer and get that virus. Uh, nobody would go to the complex expense of doing this. The good news is with six billion people on this planet, we don't have daily events of bioterrorism, even though any farm uh, can produce anthrax or any of these horrible things that we hear about. That doesn't make me sanguine about humanity. Uh, in, in the report uh, that I just talked about uh, from the Sloan uh, report, I, I think there are important laws and rules for governments to pass so that we don't get frivolous uses of uh, – we had a newspaper here that sent in a se small sequence similar to smallpox. It didn't even match it exactly and made headlines because they some companies sent the oligonucleotides to their home. That sensationalism – you know, only scares the public. Um, I think such things should absolutely be banned, and, and we don't want young kids at MIT or any place else being the first to build a virus on their block, uh, at least not one uh, that has a lethal consequences. So some reasonableness should be in place. It, most of the major companies in the U.S. screen any sequences requests that come in to see if there are anything on the aid list of biological agents. It's not a requirement. And guess what? There's about 40 countries that all have companies that produce oligonucleotides. So passing laws and banning research in this country won't change it on a global basis, as I think you said. Uh, but it's a place to start. If we can prevent frivolous uses, uh, we only have one choice if we want to eliminate bioterrorism is we have to eliminate new emerging infections. We need new vaccines, new antibiotics, and new antivirals. And I don't know of any modern government that's doing much to support research to get those. Thank you. Right. Yes. Well, I, I am a biologist, and I want to put uh, Stephen Rose. I want to put Peter Lipton's point to Chris and then to Craig. Um, Peter Lipton pointed out that biologists are concerned with reproduction. Chris Mason's um, account of um, and the analogy between synthetic life and logic circuits and electronics don't work. It doesn't work precisely because of the example that Craig gave of the way in which it, organisms interact with their environment. Organisms reproduce, organisms evolve, and they evolve in the context of an environment, and the consequences of that evolution are radically indeterminate. And in that sense, synthetic organisms are very different from the logic circuits that, uh, that, that Chris was talking about. And that, I think, in the context of the record of biointerventions, 
well-meaning when they started in the past, gives us a particular cause for concern in this area, which is not necessarily the case for electronics. In fact, I wish my iPhone would evolve. <laughs> <laughs> Gentleman in the uh, second row in the white. Thanks very much. Um, my name is Steve Yearley. I'm from the Genomics Forum in Edinburgh. Um, I, I, I suppose I want to just um, ask about the implications of what uh, Chris was saying about getting public buy-in. I mean, it, it seemed to me that, in a sense, you're talking about you know, trying to have a kind of a public debate or a public participation. But on the other hand, you've already made up your mind what the outcome is. So the public buy-in sounds a bit like persuading the public that, I know what's right, and they'll just come along behind me. Uh, and then some of the worries that Peter was talking about, I mean, some of them may be exaggerated or not, but surely if there's going to be a kind of public discourse or a public engagement about this, then to view it as just a way of getting public buy-in threatens to be at least self-defeating or, or, you know, if not sort of inauthentic or, uh, you know, um, insincere. And the lady in the fourth row. Um, I'm Shiva Tamshetty, uh, faculty here at the LSE. I have two short related questions. Um, does your spectacular success in genomics spell the end of public sector science? And secondly, is there anything you personally think should not be patented? Anything at all? Right, let's stop there, Craig. I don't think my genome should be, pop, uh, should be patented. Uh, I, I discussed it once, and then my mother called me and said she had something to do with the invention. Uh, so I, yeah, I, I don't think anything should be patented unless uh, there's, it leads to a commercial product for public good. Um, I think people tried the large-scale patenting of genes. Uh, all the companies that did that trade for less than their uh, cash value now, so fortunately that experiment is over. Uh, I don't think the six million genes that we discovered in the oceans around the world uh, that many countries wanted to own and patent and restrict uh, should be patented, which is why we put them all in the public domain and published in the Journal of Public Access of Biology. So. I think there's lots of things that should not be patented. I feel very uncomfortable with the, the Chakabarty decision and the notion of patenting naturally occurring organisms. Um, I think, though, the same arguments don't apply to synthetic genomics. It's pretty hard to argue that, you know, we didn't uh, design and create this invention in the lab. Uh, so it may be patenting a life form, but it's certainly not one we discovered in nature. I don't remember what the first part was. No, that's fine. No, why don't Chris? Would you like to answer Stephen Rose's? Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Definitely. I think it's. A, I think it's a very, very good question. I think that was an argument that was put up in the certainly in the 70s and 80s um, in the biotech industry that you could never grow um, bacteria with an insert, say, to make a drug, anything other than by hand in little bottles in, in a lab. And in fact, uh, history has shown us that it's fully automatable. You can grow and buy robots, um, and that I mean, in roller bottles, 
without any human intervention because they grow so reliably. So we can work out how to grow things, we can modify them, albeit in a small way at the moment, and that is how all our biopharmaceuticals are actually manufactured. So the fact that we've done it to a small extent already suggests that we may be able to do it in the long term. I take your point about environment, we need to work that out, but it can be done, and that is the basis of our whole industry today. I'd like to also say something in reaction to Stephen's uh, question. I, I want to disagree slightly but agree mostly. The, the slight disagreement is that I think there is a sense in which the analogy holds because I think it holds for all technologies. All technologies are exploited and used and misused in different environments and the effects they have are very sensitive to those variation in environment. So there's a level in which I think it works. But the reason I mainly agree is because I think there is a tendency in all this talk to a kind of genetic reductionism. We're supposing that, I mean, Craig was very good about that and talking about norm of reaction. But there is a tendency to think once you fix the genome, you fix the organism, you fix its behavior, you fix its effects. And that is seriously mistaken. What about the buy-in? I think the buy-in ones is another is, a, is, a, is a, again an equally good question. I mean, if we go back to uh, Proposition 71, the reason it, it got passed was that not not so much because of the science as I said earlier, but it's because the patients got behind it. People like Michael J. Fox, for example, um, uh, Christopher Reeve, and it really was the, the, the promise of cure. And part of getting Proposition 71 was I think I think there was something like 60 or 70 patients groups actually signed up to it. Now they have got influence in how that $300 million a year is spent. So I take the point about, you know, we've already made our minds up the scientists to go ahead, but I would also argue that through these initiatives there is an awful lot of public control on the direction that we ultimately go. If I could add to that just very briefly, I think public buy-in is a, not a great term. Uh, I, I'm not here to convince you, you know, so you'll vote for me and uh, make me the mayor of London or, you know, <laughs> the, the, the head of genomics here. Um, I consider it public education. I think the public has a right to know what's happening on the forefront of science. Um, I, I, I think it's unrealistic to expect everybody anywhere to buy into a notion of what we're doing. Some may just not like it. Uh, you may be happy using oil and don't want to change or you may just be worried about the technology. I think scientists have a responsibility to explain what they do to the public, uh, especially if it's funded by the public. My work uh, is in part funded by the public. The Department of Energy in the U.S. funds it, uh, but it's also funded by major foundations uh, and uh, by our own organization. Uh, and now by a, uh, a biotech company. Uh, but I think every scientist, whether they're bothered with taking the time to do it or not, uh, has that obligation. Um, so, so I don't like the term buy-in as much as um, I'm trying to get you to own the knowledge. Yeah, I think it's, it's clearly we, we have a responsibility to, to d disseminate the knowledge. I think there are examples like Prop 71 where you have people actually saying, we will pay more tax to do this science and for the translation. Yeah. That's buy-in, I think, yeah. because That's they were saying we will yeah. pay money to have it done. The second part of the question, if I remember, was is there any future for public sector oh, yes. research? Yeah. 
I mean, I'm very struck, Mark Cantley will correct, and Maurice Lex will correct me if I'm wrong, but in the European Commission's seventh framework program, I think something like 50 billion euros will be spent over seven years, and it's estimated that that's only about 5% of the R&D spend in Europe. So public sector, I mean, the idea of public sector being a major funder of scientific research, at least on this side of the Atlantic, seems to be... Um, you know, an idea of 20 or 30 years ago. The reality is very different. When societies go through uh, uh, cycles on this, it's true in the U.S. now, the government funds and dusts and 50% of the basic uh, science research. Uh, before World War II, it funded maybe 5%, uh, rose up, and now it, it's falling off again. But absolutely, there's a, there, there's a critical role for public funding of science. Uh, my view is just done very badly. You know, we have this great notion of peer review that if our peers are reviewing it, uh, <coughs> only the best things will get through. Uh, in the U.S., uh, a lot of good things do get through, but new ideas are almost always killed off. Uh, my institution has very major public uh, uh, funding but all the new ideas, including uh, what we proposed to do the first genome, the peer review process said it won't work. As soon as we showed that it worked, we got millions and millions of dollars to do all kinds of pathogens and genomes. Uh, I was lucky that I had an alternative source to do that experiment. How many thousands of scientists every day get shut down with brilliant ideas that could help change science and society because our conservative funding mechanisms don't want to take risk and do anything new. I, I've been arguing in the U.S. that the $20 billion a year out of NIH and other places, that instead of celebrating the few breakthroughs that we get, we should be really angry there's not 10 to 100 times more from all this taxpayer money that's being spent. We have to find a way to do it better. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's very hard to fund uh, Blue Skies research. It's same in the U.K. Absolutely same. Okay, we have a gentleman at the back. Well, we have a number of gentlemen at the back. I do, do apologize. But one who wants to ask a question. Uh, my name is Jim Kennedy. A question about how to enhance the public buy-in. And this goes into the qu a question of ethics, uh, notably in the application of um, gene therapy. It seems to me that a lot of the public anxiety about, uh, about gene therapy uh, is, arises from a false understanding of risk. It seems to me that the, the only uh, re, re, really legitimate area of uh, concern about risk in, in this respect to gene therapy is in, with respect to genetic, not somatic. If this um, illusion were dispelled, would that not serve to enhance public buy-in? Sarah. Uh, uh, possibly. Um, <laughs> although, of course, that distinction itself is somewhat in doubt scientifically now as well, the distinction between the germline and the soma. Uh, so so cer certainly you must, be, you must be right 
that, that more information about that distinction would be of great use in the public acceptance of these technologies. Okay, the gentleman in the green shirt for the final question. I think we should draw the proceedings to <laughs> Thank you very much. We've, um, we've talked for quite a while now about public understanding of science and then about uh, public engagement in science. And I think that often what we're talking about really is uh, selling science to the public. And so we then start to say, well, okay, we need to look at uh, the ethics in relation to science. And yet, as Peter said, um, the public are often uh, rather, uh, shall we say, inarticulate about issues around concerns, ethical concerns, and, and scientists at the same time are rather inarticulate, um, well, full stop maybe. But, um, but if we agree that there needs to be a dialogue in that place, do we, first, do we need another language with which to conduct it? But secondly, is our problem more about public understanding of ethics than about public understanding of science? Sounds like a philosophical question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I think. Well, all right. Well, I mean, I should. Uh, is that all right? I, I mean, I should, in uh, in the spirit of openness and advertising, say that uh, Hugh and I are partners in crime because yeah, uh, we're both involved with the Nuffield Council on uh, on bioethics, um, and uh, and so I'm going to agree with him. <laughs> I think, uh, but I don't think. Obviously, I don't think it's an either or. Right? I think you've got to bring people into the science. And I don't, I don't think it's not in part a question of education. In part, it's a question, and this is where the journalists can play such a crucial role, it's getting the public excited about the science, not the way it was taught in school, but in a way that really catches their interest. I think just to give a model, not from The Economist, though I think The Economist is exemplary in this respect, uh, if you look at the last week's issue of The New Yorker, there's a wonderful piece on neural imaging on how uh, one of my colleagues at Cambridge, Adrian Owen, has found that uh, a woman in a persistent vegetative state, in fact, is almost certainly conscious and is able to imagine playing tennis. It's quite remarkable stuff. And the New Yorker presents that science in a way that is entirely accessible and exciting. So I think it is possible, and that education is part of it, but that alone is too much of the diffusion model. There's also got to be an interaction and I think that interaction has to work both on the scientific side and on the ethical side. We all have plenty of ethical intuitions, but most of us are not good at articulating them and not good at working out how to bring them up against each other so that they produce friction and so one's forced to make revision. That's the key to ethical reasoning. We all could use a lot more training, and that would make us, I think, engage better between scientists and the public. So I'm completely with you on that one. Mr. Chairman, if I could just add to that very briefly. Implicit in your question, either deliberately or not, uh, is the assumption that scientists themselves don't ask ethical questions. And I totally disagree. It's not just the public or bioethicists that ask ethical questions. We asked uh, for a bioethical review uh, because it would bring in broader groups and broader discussion than the scientists on our team uh, could have. Uh, we, we don't represent all major religions on our scientific team, for example. Uh, I, I don't know a scientist that doesn't start with asking ethical questions themselves. I think that's one of the bis biggest misnomers about science uh, that the public has. That That's something I would like public buy-in on. 
Yeah, and if I could just add really briefly, I, I, I don't actually think the confusion is about ethics. I think partly the confusion is about science and this constant assumption that science has to be some sort of rarefied expert domain that people don't know anything about. I mean, so many of the basic principles in some of the most advanced areas of science come from agriculture, livestock breeding, things that are very quotidian, very normal, very much a part of everyday lives. I, th I think the idea that, that the, the public are all uneducated and the scientists are all inarticulate is, is, is hackneyed. I always feel a bit, bit sorry to use that phrase in London, but um, <laughs> it's, it's out of date. Right, on that point, ladies and gentlemen, I think we should draw the proceedings to a close. I have one or two minor announcements, maybe, well, maybe totally important announcements. Uh, Craig Venter is going to be at the RSA tomorrow talking specifically about science and the press. It's a public meeting, and the RSA is between here and Charing Cross Station on the Strand. And I think if you drop down on the, if you're walking towards Charing Cross, sort of halfway down, you go down some steps, I believe it's John Adams Street, and there are very nice lectures there, there. and that's at one o'clock tomorrow if you'd like to drop in. Uh, second announcement, thank you very much for uh, coming along, and I hope you've enjoyed this evening as much as I have, and I think uh, I must, special thanks to Craig Venter, to Peter, uh, and to Chris, and to Sarah for, I hope, not ignoring any of your questions, they did, I think, get answered. Uh, and so, uh, can we uh, give them a round of applause? For their Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'd like to thank the LSE for hosting this, and I would like to thank my fellow panelists for the uh, most thoughtful discussions I've had here in the UK, and I appreciate it very much. <laughs>